Facebook Live uh, works. All of those things, they literally work behind the scenes, behind everybody. They come early, they make sure things sound good. It's a, a regular um, and important part of Sundays is making, trying to eliminate distractions so that we can just sing and hear God's word and we can read God's word um, and remove all those distractions. So everybody on the A, thank you for doing that. Uh, if that's something that interests you, uh, we can definitely get you plugged into that. Like I said, in those Connect cards, you can circle AV team, uh, and we will get you trained and for that. So thank you, everybody. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in to a new series on the life of Joseph. Please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another opportunity to gather with you, and gather in your house together with your people. Lord, as we seek after you, God, grant us wisdom and courage and grace and strength to faithfully fulfill the ministry of life you have called us to. We want to be who you have called us to be. We want to step into the moments you have laid out ahead of time for us, Lord. We want to be the lights that you have made us to be, and we know that we need you to do it. God, as we open up your word, Help us to see what is hard to see. Help us to hear what is hard to hear. Help us to take and learn and grow and be challenged. And not just be challenged and sit in that challenge, but rise up to that challenge to pursue you to a greater level. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so before we get to Joseph... I want to do a little family background on Joseph to let you know kind of where he's coming from. So we're going to breeze through three generations of life. Um, as you're studying the Bible, if you're looking for something, you can start back in Genesis 12 with a man named Abram, who, turns, who God changes his name to Abraham. Um, God calls Abram and says, you are going to be through you, I am going to bless the world. Abram, Abraham, through you, I am going to care for the world. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Covenant is based on people, land, and blessing. He says, Abram, I'm going to give you so many descendants that are going to be more than the stars in the sky and the sand and the beach. I'm going to give you a land, a promised land, a land that is good and fruitful that your people can live in. And Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless the world through you. You will be a blessing to others. But to be that blessing and to fill this beautiful land God has given him, first, he needs a people. Promise to Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old and he's got no descendants. He's got no kids. God makes this promise to Abraham. Ten years go by. Still no children. No heir. And so Abraham's wife, who was Sarai, later renamed Sarah, decides, you know what? I'm going to help out God. He clearly forgot about this promise, so I'm going to step in. So Abraham and Sarah decide Abraham should sleep with her handmaiden to produce this heir, to line of promised people that God has promised started. Abraham does this. He has a boy. His name is Ishmael. And because of this, it creates resentment and hatred between the women. Eventually, Hagar, the child's mom, and Ishmael eventually are cast out. And God protects them. And he is, uh, Ishmael becomes the father of the Ishmaelites. We'll see them this morning as you read the Old Testament. Ishmaelites, they come from Ishmael, who is the son of Abraham. And throughout generations, there is friction and war between these descendants. 
between the descendants of Ishmael and the ones that God is going to provide Abraham. Abraham gets to be 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old, and God provides them finally with a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac grows up. He takes his wife. Her name is Rebekah. They have two sons, Esau and Jacob. These two sons are fighting literally from the beginning. Esau is the older son. He's born just moments before his little brother Jacob, who comes out holding on to his brother's heel. They were wrestling in the womb. Jacob comes out holding his they do not get along. And as they grow up, each, fa- each parent favors one of the kids. Isaac prefers Esau. Rebekah prefers Jacob. She prefers him so much that Rebekah helps Jacob Isaac in his old age into giving Jacob Esau's inheritance, his blessing, his future. Basically, this is the first form of identity theft that happens. We see these parents playing Isaac prefers Esau, Rebekah prefers Jacob. This is going to be a generational theme that is going to destroy and wreck this family. It leads to Esau so and tries to kill his brother. Hate and resentment flow throughout this family line. Jacob was smart, probably too smart for his own good. He was cunning, he was a liar and a deceiver, he was and slick. He could talk his way in and out of anything. Eventually, God literally wrestles Jacob into submission and helps him to see his desperate need for a relationship with God, his desperate need to change and trust God and not his own abilities. Jacob is later renamed Israel. Jacob is going to have many sons, 12 of them in fact. And those 12 sons, as they grow up and have wives and they have kids, these descendants are going to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. The descendants that come from this will come as a fulfillment to the promise made to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the beach. It's going to come through the descendants from Jacob, the descendants of Israel. Like I said, Jacob has 12 sons. It's 12 sons through four different women. Basically four different wives. He's fleeing, fleeing for his life from his brother Esau when he stops at a well to get a drink and falls in love. Her name is Rachel. Jacob wants to marry Rachel. So she goes to her dad, who in fact is Jacob's, Jacob's uncle, which we don't even have time to get into that. Goes to her dad, Rachel. Jacob's says, if you work the land for seven years, you take care of my sheep, take care of my life, my offspring, take care of, all, take care of everything, I'm going to give you Rachel. I will bless this marriage. So Jacob does that for seven years for his uncle. And then on the wedding night, he is tricked, and he ends up marrying and laying with Rachel's sister, Leah. Jacob ends up working another seven years for the right to actually marry Rachel, and he does. He marries both of them. Polygamy is in the Bible. Can't avoid it. But just because it's there does not mean the Bible condones polygamy. It is never condoned, and it always leads to negative consequences and family ruin. It breeds generational sin. One man, one woman. That's the original plan. When you deviate from that in any way, chaos and corruption ensues. Back to the story. Jacob lays with Leah. She gives birth to six boys and one girl. 
to the history of Christianity. One, his name is Levi. Levi is going to, and his descendants are going to grow up to lead the church. They're going to lead the synagogue, the temple. They are going to be the ones, the priests, who go before God on behalf of the people to give sacrifices, to uh, help them worship. They are going to be the ones who run uh, and help be the conduit for the people of God to worship God. The other one is going to be Judah. It is from Judah through his good-looking shepherd boy is going to be born. His name is David. David will grow up to be the king of Israel. He will be the greatest king Israel ever has. He will kill giants. He will write songs about how he killed giants. He will be a rock star and the greatest king ever, a man after God's own heart. And then generations later, with a line of people that includes murderers and liars and adulterers and some of the worst of the worst, eventually a young woman who claims to be a virgin, is going to give birth. That baby is going to get laid in a manger, and he will be called Jesus. It is from the descendants of David, who is a descendant of Judah, who comes from the fact that Jacob was tricked by his uncle and lays with Leah, that Jesus arrives. Because God takes what is broken and messy and ugly, and he restores and he rebuilds. So Leah... Leah, when she finds out she can't have any more kids, decides to give her handmaiden Zilpah to Jacob to have two more boys. So now we're up to eight. Abraham and Sarah did the same thing. It was a bad idea then. It's a bad idea now. It caused jealousy and hate and corruption and evil. All the while, it brings us to Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. She was the one who started all of this. Rachel is barren which at the time is one of the worst things for a woman. She resents Leah. She resents Leah's handmaiden. She feels incomplete. She feels like she is letting Jacob down. So as a bad man in the family, she gives her handmaiden, Bilhah, to Jacob to produce kids. She has two boys. We're up to ten. Eventually, God does bless Rachel's ability to conceive. She gives birth to two boys, Joseph, numbers 11 and 12. These 12 boys from four different women make up the 12 tribes of Israel, and their descendants will make up the nation of Israel. That was a very condensed version. It is very clear this family is messed up. Thanksgiving, awkward. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. And it is with this background, this infighting, this hate and resentment and anger, Chapter 37. Genesis 37, starting in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him Joseph is 17 out with his brothers it says he is a boy in comparison to his brothers because his oldest brother the oldest of the 12 Reuben is somewhere between 12 15 years older than his brother so even at 17 he's 
He's like a kid to some of the older ones. It says in verse 2, he's out working with many of his older brothers. up to no good. He tattles. We don't know what they were doing, but it was bad enough to warrant Joseph telling on them. Something about little brothers telling on their older brothers, man. It doesn't change. So we can already see here, just in this, that the nature of their relationship between the brothers is fractured. Not only the fact that they are very different ages, they're very different stages of life. If Reuben is somewhere between 12 to 15 years older, Reuben's probably got a wife of his own, or at least is about to, probably maybe even kids of his own. Very different stages of life. Not to mention the different mothers and all of those things playing into it. And not only was there a disconnect in age and stage of life and different mothers, but we see in verse 3, Jacob flat out favored Joseph the most because he was the son of his old age, because he was the one of two that came from Rachel, who he loved. Because they were the two last ones. And not only was this clear in the way that Jacob treated Joseph, but he made it abundantly clear when he gives him a tunic. A robe of many colors. This was not something you were, this is not like a hoodie and jeans and boots. This is not something you were going to go do manual labor in. This was a long-sleeved body tunic, wrist to ankle. This cost money to make. The fact that it was multiple colors meant you had to spend different money to get different threads. This was pricey. This was privilege. This was status. This was something important. It is a tangible example to all who saw it of his exalted status in the eyes of his father. And I'm sure he wore it often. I'm sure every chance he could, he put on that tunic. And every time he put it on, It was this reminder to his brothers, this silent reminder that he was number one in dad's heart. And we see in verse 4, his brothers hated him for it. They could not speak peacefully to him. It means they didn't greet him when he walked into a room. They wouldn't address him. It caused division and strife within the family, animosity and hatred. But let's be sure, this is not all on the brothers. It's not like the brothers are just jerks. Jacob clearly played favorites. He fell into the same trap that his own parents did. He knew firsthand what parental favoritism can do to a family, and he was doing it all over again. Parents, your children are always watching, are always listening, are always paying attention. They know how you treat them. They know how you treat their siblings. Do not play favorites. Do not create a hierarchy within your family. You are to love, protect, guide, and care for your children, period. Not to varying degrees based on how much you like them. And even those of you who are parents with one child, do not neglect that child because they have gifts, talents, abilities that are different than your own. You've got to find ways to love your kid, to meet them where they are, to help them learn and grow and navigate this increasingly hostile world. Just because they're different than you, they have different interests or likes, does not mean you get to ignore those parts of who God has made them to be. Jacob failed at this. He watched his parents destroy his relationship with his brother, and he repeated their mistakes. 
We are called to learn and grow from what people have done in the past. And let's also be clear, though, for all the great things that Joseph is that we're going to talk about over these next few weeks, he clearly knew he was dad's favorite, right? I mean, at 17, he's still tattling. So, like, just as his brothers were very aware of his favoritism, so was he, and he leaned into it. Is that a reason for them to hate him like they did? No. But that's only part of the story. We see in verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Joseph has a dream. The dream was that his brothers and he were all out farming, and Joseph's wheat stalk stood tall and proud while all of his other brothers' wheat stalks bowed down to his. And he told his brothers this dream, and they heard it, and they knew what it meant, that somehow Joseph was better than them. Somehow Joseph was greater than them. We see in verse 8, one of his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Again, you shouldn't hate somebody because of a dream. Right? We can't control our dreams. But Joseph also could have kept that one to himself. At best, it shows a lack of tact. He knew what his relationship with his brothers was like. This wasn't going to make it any better. And at worst, it's revealing some of his own arrogance and pride. He has another dream we see in verse 9. It says, The sun and the moon and eleven stars are bowing to him. Jacob interprets this as that he and his wife Rachel are the moon and the sun, and the eleven stars are his brothers. The whole family is bowing to Joseph. Once again, Joseph, buddy, learn from what you already did. The first time was a bad idea. This is going to be just as bad, if not worse, because now you're putting yourself above your father and your mother. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Whether or not it was a good idea to tell the brothers about this, it probably wasn't, but it doesn't stop the events from coming true because eventually we're going to see the family will come and bow down before Joseph, not knowing who he is. Too often, Christians will say something that is biblical and true, but they will do it with no tact, no grace, no love, and they do it under the guise of, my gifting is prophecy. I'm just speaking truth. And yes, I agree, some people need to hear hard truths in a very direct and sometimes even harsh way to get it, for it to finally sink in. But most of the time, that's not the case. And that shouldn't be your default. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to speak truth in love. Why? So that we can grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We speak truth in love to one another to help each other become more and more like Christ the same Jesus we claim to love and adore and follow. And so speaking the truth in love means speaking it with compassion, with grace, with gentleness, caring for that person in that moment, helping them seek after and pursue Jesus. Joseph clearly could have used some of that. In this family, we see hatred. and We see resentment and jealousy and discontentment 
and anger and disappointment and conditional love and frustration. These things will linger and destroy families. They will destroy individuals. They will fester and grow, and if they are not dealt with, they will manifest in horrible ways. And that's what we see happen here. Skip down to verse 18. Joseph is sent to go check on his brothers who are out tending the sheep. It says in verse 18, they, his brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and, he, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Joseph is sent by his dad to check on his brothers. They see him coming. They see that coat coming. It was probably hard to miss among the neutral colors, right? You got a lot of browns and greens and grays, and then here comes this multicolored object of annoyance toward them. Oh, look. Guess who's coming, guys? I am so sick of Joseph and that coat. Here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him in a pit. Let's see how his dreams of us bowing down to him come true when he's dead. Evil, hate, left untreated, will manifest itself eventually. Finally, Reuben, who is the oldest of the boys, speaks up because he's the one responsible for all of them. And he pulls them back from the ledge. He says, killing him is a little bit extreme, guys. Maybe just rough him up, throw him in the pit. That's enough. And it says Reuben's plan was to go back later on. He was going to go back and rescue Joseph and return him to his dad. See, Reuben is trying to play every angle. He's trying to protect Joseph. He's trying to keep his brothers happy and not alienate them himself from them. And he's trying to score some brownie points with dad because if he rescues and brings back the golden child, maybe Reuben's going to move up a little bit in the rankings because you knew Jacob had rankings. You know, Reuben could have just stood up and shut it all down right in that moment. But instead, he was worried about how he would be received and he chickened out. He was worried about what his brothers would say or think. When you know what is right, when you know what is right and what is wrong, do right. Don't play games. Don't look for an angle. Don't look for a loophole. Reuben's plan doesn't work out the way he wanted to, and because of it, he causes serious damage within this family. So Joseph gets there, and his brothers, it says, take off the coat they hated so much, and they throw him into a pit. I'm sure they got some sick pleasure and joy from overpowering and ripping that coat off of him. And that says in verse 25, they sat down to eat. Their plan is just leave him there. In their minds, they don't care what happens next. Let nature take its course. Maybe an animal does come and get him. Instead, they sit and have a lunch break as they listen to their brother call for help and struggle to get himself free. 
And while they're eating, a caravan of Ishmaelites show up. We said they are the enemies of the Israelites. They are probably these guys' distant cousins. They're like second cousins. They show up. And then we see in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Judah has the bright idea to make some money off this deal. Instead of killing Joseph, sell him. You get something in return. Note, it was Judah who said this. Judah, who is so important to the history of our faith. He's the one who is, from him will come David, from him will come Jesus, and he's the one here leading the charge to sell his brother as a piece of meat. What we'll see over time is that God takes Judah and softens his heart. God redeems and rescues and reclaims the lost, even someone so lost as they would be willing to sell their brother into slavery. And so they pull Joseph out of the pit, and you got to figure he was excited. Okay, you guys had your fun. Let me have my coat back. Thanks for getting me out of the pit. And instead, they sell him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Reuben was apparently gone while this was taking place because he comes back and Joseph has been sold. Joseph is gone, the pit is empty, and Reuben now realizes he has to give an account to his dad for what has happened. He's on the hook for what has happened. And while he thought he was going to earn some brownie points with Jacob, if anything, he's going to fall farther down the totem pole. And so now the boys come up with another brilliant idea. They take Joseph's coat and they cover it in blood and they bring it to their father and they tell him Joseph was attacked and killed. Look at verse 32. Actually, I'll start in 30. I'll catch up with you guys. The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go, says Reuben. They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. We found this. Is this your son's? Not, is this our brother's? Is this Joseph's? Is this your son, that, that other one that you have? Identify it for us as if they couldn't, as if they didn't, as if Jacob couldn't. This was unique. This was made by Jacob himself with his own two hands. He knew that coat. Not only does this show the cruelty of these brothers towards Joseph, it's also aimed at Jacob as well because he's the one who's playing favorites. Jacob, as far as he knows, has lost his son his favorite son. He is devastated. He is heartbroken, and he falls into a deep depression and mourning. It will be 13 years before Jacob is reunited with Joseph. He spends those years anguishing over what he believes to be his dead son, and it changes the way he is with the rest of his son. Benjamin, the youngest, is basically held captive at the house. He's not allowed to go anywhere for the rest of his life because Jacob is so worried about what could happen to him. He retreats into a shell of himself. In verse 36, at the very end of this chapter, it says the Midianites, that's another name for the Ishmaelites, the Midianites have sold him, being Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph ends up in Egypt, 
sold to a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. In the midst of all of this, there is no one person totally at fault. Everybody shares a little bit of the blame here. Jacob has been playing favorites with his kids. Joseph probably has some pride and arrogance issues he needs to work out on. And his brothers could never let go of their anger, their jealousy, their discontentment with their status in life toward their brother and their father. They were jealous. Seeing something you don't have, seeing someone you want to be, and being angry and resentful at your own perceived lack. Jealousy and discontentment, these things go hand in hand, and really a lot of it is what is our economic system is based on, right? Your car is not fast enough. Your clothes are not stylish enough. Your phone is not new enough. Get more, get newer. Now, having nice stuff, that is not bad. If you can have nice stuff, get it. It's nice to have nice things. But when that's what drives you and consumes you, there is an issue. Experiencing new things, traveling, having new experiences is not bad. When you are constantly looking for that next high, when you are never satisfied with where God has placed you, you got to start to ask, why can't you ever rest? And even beyond commerce, even beyond economics, in life, we are pitted against one another. In school, in work, in athletics, in romance, you are trying to be the best. You are trying to achieve a certain goal. And if you don't and someone else does, somehow they're better than you. They are faster, smarter, more attractive. And you begin to resent them. Then you start to resent yourself and your flaws. Then you take that further and you start to resent your family for raising you the way they did. And then ultimately it can lead you to resenting your creator. Relationships are good. Success is good. Fun is good. But when they are the driving force of your life, when our lack of these things is the main focus of our lives, when we, neg- when we feel negatively toward others because we see them experiencing success, that's a dangerous road to walk down. Jealousy and discontentment mixed with some anger and resentment can be a lethal combination, and it leads to rebellion and a warped view of reality. See, ultimately, within all of us, there is this desire for something better, for something best. And that longing is a longing for a relationship with God. It is a longing that we wrongly aim in multiple directions, looking for satisfaction, looking for that longing to be fulfilled, which only furthers our discontentment, which only then grows our jealousy of others who we perceive to have found that satisfaction. And it's a vicious cycle. And it continues, and it it intensifies, and it begins to destroy our reality. When we become discontent with where God has brought us to, we begin to daydream and fantasize about this mythical alternate universe. What if I would have gone left instead of right? What if if I would have made this choice instead of that one? If only I had a better house, if only I had a better car, if only I had a better spouse, a better job, then I'd be happy, then I'd be set. But when we begin thinking that way, we lose sight of the blessings God has provided for us right in front of our faces. We stop enjoying the things God has given us because we are convinced that something better is out there for us. But you can look throughout Scripture. You can look 
throughout history. You can look at your own desires for the new and the shiny, especially this time of year. And we can see that if we allow ourselves to live in this world of constant discontentment, we will never be satisfied with anything. It's like you have a box of produce and you put one moldy melon in there. What's going to happen to the rest of the ripe stuff? That mold is going to spread and destroy everything. Jealousy and resentment and discontentment and anger, these things will spread and begin to color the world that you see. It will affect every aspect of your life. There is a longing in you to be satisfied, and it can and will only ever be resolved by finding your satisfaction, your contentment in Christ, your identity, your purpose, and worth in Christ. Jesus himself said as much. John 4, he talks about being the living water, that when you drink of it, you will never go thirsty again. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me shall no longer hunger. Whoever believes in me shall no longer thirst. He was saying, in the same way you feel after a good full meal, and you sit and you're like, man, that was awesome. I can't move. I am totally fulfilled and satisfied. You can only truly experience that in life that satisfaction, this contentment in Christ. He alone has the power to forgive sins. He alone has the ability to take us from rebels to sons and daughters of God. By believing that Christ's death and resurrection not only pays the penalty for our sin and rebellion, but gives us new life. It gives us hope if we will trust in him. He will show you what it means to be content to be satisfied by knowing that you have all that you need for your circumstances. And his direction in your life will not only bring him glory, but it is what's best for you. It is in Christ alone that true strength to deal with whatever this life may give or take away comes from. Can you sit, um, gone from all the distractions, can you sit alone and say, My God has given, is giving, and will give all that I need to live and be satisfied and truly believe that and truly be okay with that. That doesn't mean we don't ask for things. It doesn't mean that we don't feel bad when we experience loss. It means I will not be consumed and driven by my own pursuit of my wants and my desires. So a couple of questions for you to think about. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is always looking out for your best interest? Do you believe that God has not forgotten or ignored you? Do you believe that God will provide what you need? Trusting God It's hard at times. It is hard when life is hard. It's hard when life is confusing or the future is murky. We left Joseph a slave in Egypt. Next week, we're going to see how his world goes from bad to worse because not only is he a slave, but he's going to find himself to be a slave in prison, abandoned by his brothers, forgotten by any friends he thought he had. His future looks bleak but he does not waver or lose faith in God because he knew enough of who God was to trust him. Brothers and sisters, God made you. You were created by God. He has given you the gifts 
and talents and abilities that you have. He has wired you to be exactly who you are. He made you with a purpose in mind. You, just by existing, have value and worth and were created in the image and likeness of God. God made you and he knows you. He knows all of you. He knows the good stuff, the stuff you want to post on social media, and he knows the bad stuff, the stuff you keep hidden in the back of the closet of your mind. He knows all of it. He knows your jealousies, your frustrations, your rage, your resentment. He knows all of it, and he knows what you need. And in spite of knowing all the dirt on your life, he loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you, which is the greatest need that you have loves you so much that he will provide for you exactly what you need. When we can rest in, when we can trust in who God is, it frees us up to not only be content in this life regardless of our circumstances, but it also allows us to enjoy and encourage the success of others. Don't be that moldy piece of fruit hurting everybody else around you. Remember that God is for you and not against you. And if you ever think for a moment that that's not true, remember, go back to the Gospels and remember Jesus. Jesus proved at the cross that God is for you because he died for you and he rose again for you. And he continues to prove it day after day, moment after moment, as he watches and cares for and loves you. Discontentment and jealousy Those are things that will destroy you from the inside out. But when we can find our contentment, when we can find our rest, not in who we are, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, that's when we can start to see life change. That's when we can look at no matter what this life has to offer us, good, bad, indifferent, or otherwise, and say, God is for me, God is in control, and we can trust him, and we can rest in him. And we can support others in their success. We can support others in when they are having a hard time. We can be that rock for them. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He made you and knows you and loves you. Trust that, rest in that, and let that motivate you into your next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for this chance to gather, for this chance to read your word, for this chance to learn. God, thank you that the Bible is still relevant. That is 2019, about to be 2020, and it still plays. That even Genesis still matters, still is very real. God, we want to be consistent in our walk with you. We want to be devoted. We want to not waver. We want to trust you in everything, in every way. But God, when this life throws us hardship, when this life throws difficult things to deal with at us, it is easy to be distracted. It is easy, like Peter when he walked on the water, to see the size of the waves and the strength of the wind and to stop trusting and to start focusing on the negative. God, help us to focus on you. Help us to remember who you are. Help us to remember daily, moment by moment, that you are with us and for us. 
Lord, help us to never lose sight of that. And when we do, if we do, Lord, point us back to the cross and to the grace and the forgiveness and the new life and the hope and the identity found in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. God, let us rediscover the gospel every day. Let us be re-reminded every day of our need for you, of the joy that is found in a relationship with you. Lord, this life is hard and this world is at times dark and messy. Thank you for being one that we can lean into and trust in and hide in and be strengthened and filled up by. Lord, as we go to be lights of the world, give us the strength to do that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.